This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops baseball cards. Happy Friday. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. Lots to talk about this week. We have trouble in Anaheim in the wake of Mike Trout's injury earlier this week. We'll check in on a few more rookie performances. We've seen a couple of starts now from Logan Gilbert, and we've seen a week's worth of at-bats from Jared Kelnick. Talk about a few other interesting rookies as well. And it's been a great year for the umpires so far, Keith, so we may end up uh, getting into <laughs> that territory at some point as well. I'm just here for the ump show. Everybody is. That's why we buy tickets. That's why we buy gear. That's why we do anything we do. We cover this game because we love the umpires. Uh, But let's start in Anaheim. Mike Trout out for the next six to eight weeks with a calf injury and apparently no imminent plans to call up Brandon Marsh or Joe Adele. But who knows? That could change any day. My question for you is, when you look at these two players, Adele had a taste of the big leagues in 2020, had major contact issues. And it's still striking out quite a bit in AAA early on this season. Marsh is playing at AAA for the first time. He's only played six games because of a shoulder injury. He's also striking out more than 30% of the time. But I don't know if that's necessarily enough time to say, yeah, he's got a strikeout issue. So if you're thinking about bringing up at least one of these guys, now that Trout's down, do you go with Marsh first or do you go with Joe Adele first? I go with Marsh first uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, he's a better defensive player, especially we saw Jordan Adele struggle so much defensively last year, enough to surprise me. But if you're the Angels, you know, and there's no replacing Mike Trout, right? This might, this might tank their season. Not going that far to say it absolutely will. Obviously, we've seen teams lose their best players and still manage to overcome it, but it's not looking good, right? And so... At the very least, I would say, call up the guy with a little more floor. He's going to give you same. Call up Brandon Marsh. You should get good defensive value right away. And Marsh, yeah, he has, we're looking at a sample here of 29 PA. He has nine punch outs. He's also walked seven times, and he's generally been a pretty patient, pretty disciplined hitter so far in his pro career. I don't take the, you do, I don't want to overread into some small samples here. Yeah, he's hitting for power. Great. It's the PC. What was the PCL? I'll call it the PCL till I die. And <laughs> and it's Salt Lake, which is a reasonably good hitter's park. And I wonder if I'm going to pull up his game logs, right? Has he played at Albuquerque yet? That probably, I oh, know they've been home. They've actually been home for all six games, uh, thanks to this new crazy minor league schedule thing. So I think you've got a better chance of getting more than replacement level production out of Brandon Marsh for six weeks than out of Joe Adele for six weeks. You might catch, be more likely to catch lightning in the proverbial bottle with Adele where suddenly he hits for crazy power for a couple of weeks and you get more production, but you've got much more chance of just getting nothing out of Adele. And then that's not even thinking about the angle of long-term development. With Adele struggling so much last year, would it make more sense to say to him, we're not rushing you back to the big leagues. We did it once. We're not. This is this just changes your timetable a little bit. We want you to spend more time in AAA, and here are three things specifically we think you need to work on before you we bring you back. You hate, I hate to see a situation where a player comes up, struggles, has a clear thing to work on, 
gets sent back down, and then suddenly, ah, oh, it's an injury. Scrap the whole development plan. We're just we're bringing you back up because it's an emergency. You have to balance the two things. And it's not easy for Perry Manassi. It was not easy for Billy Epler, where in, with the Angels, you have the best player probably in the history of the game, still in his prime, and you can't seem to make the playoffs. But how are you going to build a better team around him if you don't get the time to build from within? Simply throwing money at their various roster problems has not done anything to get it. certainly hasn't gotten them back to the playoffs. So this is a case where Marsh, I think, is a great prospect in his own right. He doesn't have a Dell ceiling, but he can offer you more right now. And it probably interferes less, less with their development plan for him than a call-up would with their development plan for Adele. Right. You've tried the aggressive arc with Adele, and you have a reasonable amount of proof that he's not quite ready. With mm-hmm. Marsh, you haven't proven that. And I think when you're six below 500, which is the case entering play on Thursday, they'll play a double header by the time people hear this podcast. So they could be eight below by the time people listen if things don't go well. Uh, you don't have that proof yet with Marsh. And I think the defensive aspect of this is important too. This is a surprisingly bad defensive team that shouldn't be that bad. And they've missed Anthony Rendon for a stretch this year. Uh, so they should be trending in the right direction that way. Marsh at least gives you that good presence in center field. So I think that's one way to look at it for sure. And I think the other way you have to look at this too is the replacements on the bench don't bring a lot to get excited about. You don't want both you know, Jose Rojas and Taylor Ward in the lineup together. Maybe you could have those guys sharing a spot and get away with it for a few weeks. But I think you're really overexposing someone like Rojas trying to play him on an everyday basis. And I realize both of these guys dominated AAA while being old for the level in the year of the rabbit ball. Of the <laughs> two, I could see Ward being slightly better, a former first-round pick, you know, very athletic. It's possible, but you also can't look at that and go, well, just because he's a first-round pick, he's going to be good. Yeah, he was a first-round pick. Well, first of all, I, I remember when he was taken, and I kind of laughed. I said, well, that's not a first-rounder. Um, he was basically taken there because he was a catcher at the time, but he wasn't very good, and he was hit power over hit. And I think that was a case of, first of all, Jerry Depoto was the GM at the time, if I'm remembering correctly, and he was adamant about taking college players. They took mostly college players, uh, particularly in, when they were drafting high or when they were just drafting in the first round. They did it every, they veered from that a little bit, but without with with terrible results often. So he was very, very focused on take the college player. And in Ward's case, I think the argument was, well, he's a cu- he's a catcher with power. It was pretty high floor. He should get there quickly. And the problem was he wasn't really a very good catcher. And you do have to hit some to get to your power. So, you know, Ward is – God, he's 27 already. We're getting old. The There's really not much in Ward's minor league career to make me think that he could be even close to an average regular at any position he could play. If I thought he could catch, if you could stick him behind the plate and he would be just passable, then there's a role for him. If he's your third catcher and then is filling in at a bunch of different positions, sure. He could be the last guy on a roster, but that's basically it. They just don't – this goes back a little bit to what I said in my first answer. They've just never been able to or willing to take a breath and say, we got to build. We got to get prospects into the system and – have to even if that means not winning this year we go into this next season we say we're not we are gonna we'll go with what we have but we're not going all in to try to get back to the playoffs and let some of the talent accumulate and maybe trade a veteran or two to get some more prospects and draft a little higher one year 
they have just not done that. And I, I, my guess is that's probably coming from ownership because this has been true through DePoto, through Epler, and now with Perry Manassian. We're, we're seeing the pretty much that same philosophy. Manassian has made some bolder moves, I think. I think Epler tried to also. But ultimately, it is, I've spent a lot of money on this team. You go build me a winner. And it's just not that easy. Not Certainly not when, at one point under DePoto, this was what I, they had what I said was the worst farm system I'd ever seen. It's not that bad now. It's actually not close to that bad, but it is, they're still recovering from that. And it's going to take more time, time that they, the owner seems like he's not really willing to give them. Yeah. I mean, when you look up and down this roster, the number of players that actually developed internally is amazingly short. I mean, Justin Upton, yep. an overpay a few years ago, Anthony Rendon, a big free agent move, Dylan Bundy, obviously not from the Angels organization, Andrew Heaney is another guy that came from a different organization. Like Every good player, it seems like, came from somewhere else. I mean, obviously they drafted Trout, but that's sort of like giving the Nats credit for developing Steven Strasburg. It's like, well, you guys probably didn't do that. You just got really lucky and were on a guy who happens to be a generational talent. That doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean you're good at developing players. Yeah, I give them all the credit for being the team that was willing to take Mike Trout when so many other teams passed, right? The consensus of the industry was this was not the greatest player in baseball history. Uh, so give the Angels credit for pulling that trigger. But then once he got into pro ball, it was, oh, oh, apparently we all screwed up. This guy's actually pretty elite. I mean, he was clear he was elite from when he was, I'd argue, from his very first summer in the Arizona Rookie League. But I'm just pulling up their roster now, and it is, yeah, that is astonishingly poor how little, I mean, they're not even spitting out relievers from their own farm system, which is awful. I mean, anyone, if you're just drafting velocity, you can probably churn out a couple of relievers. You won't get much in the way of starters. Nobody really should be drafting that way. But you'll almost accidentally fall into some decent relievers. They have one start canning was their own. And I'm actually not sure which other pitchers on this roster. Well, Chris Rodriguez is on the IL. He is their own. Jose Suarez. I mean, these are guys who've thrown like four or five innings. There's just, that is really bad. That's actually worse than I would have if you'd asked me, Colt, don't look at the roster. How many guys do you think are homegrown? I would have guessed more than this for sure. Yeah, and you've got Jared Walsh and David Fletcher among the other position players that came up David in the system. David Fletcher, yeah. Yeah, big credit for that one. I, I remember Fletcher uh, as a college guy. He's a, he, and he isn't, he's still a no-power big leaguer, but he's big leaguer. He's turned into a better big leaguer than I would have expected. Um, and that was a, that's just a good job. It's a good job of scouting and a good job of developing there. And Jared Walsh is pretty interesting, too. I mean, he's 27 now, but pretty big step forward for him in the shortened season. K rate's up a little bit compared to what he was doing last year, but he's getting the power pretty consistently. Eight homers in 40 games thus far. Looks like a guy that at least sticks for a while as their primary first baseman. I mean, with all the shuffling when they decided to let Albert Pujols go, Walsh moving back to first base and creating that spot in the outfield, to me, was one of the immediate upgrades for this team as they were trying to get their best possible starting nines on the field yeah it's, i'll be curious to see what they do with him going forward because he's he's basically a platoon bat right he's a left-handed hitter who ha- doesn't really hit lefties but he also hasn't really played much against lefties so is the decision going to be going for i think he saw he only has five starts against lefties this year will they just decide to play him every day uh, and say we'll, we'll see if this improves with continued reps 
Or do they decide to find another platoon partner for him, another right-handed hitter? I mean, they had a right-handed hitter and they let him go. So that's obviously Pools was not the solution. But do they partner him with somebody to try to get more production or simply say, we will live with Jared Walsh probably being kind of a non-factor on days when lefties are in the lineup because we need those roster spots for other things. Right. Yeah, you can't platoon everywhere. So you drop into the bottom third of the order that day and you're good to go. You know, we kind of mentioned Albert Pujols in passing, and after the Angels DFA'd him, I thought the reports that there were multiple teams interested in him were teams just being drunk as they were having information leaked to various writers. But it turns out Albert Pujols signed with the Dodgers, and they're playing him a little bit because of all the injuries that they've got right now. Doesn't this seem like a situation where as they get healthier, he's just going to get DFA'd again? That's my assumption. I don't really see where he fits in for them. I also don't think he's going to be able to produce and he really shouldn't be playing the field. Yeah. What I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's been promised to him. I do find it. I found that move, especially curious, right? As the Dodgers are one of the best run organizations in baseball. Obviously they're defending champions. They have a huge analytics department. They also, as far as I know, have kept all or most of their scouts. And I feel like, who was arguing for this move exactly, right? That's what I don't get. I'm not even quite saying that totally. It's always a little bit sarcastic with me, but R&D wasn't, I assume, were the scouts. I mean, if you saw him this year, he looked done. Right. So I really don't understand what the what exactly the argument was. Um, I, I don't know. I don't understand where he, how he ends up playing as players start to get healthy and come back. I, I can't figure out a scenario where he's still on this team and playing regularly in late June, barring some other unexpected injury. He's just, they have better options. Yeah, I was really surprised. And anytime a team like that does something I don't see coming, it makes me kind of question my own evaluation process. Like, what's missing in my toolbox? Right. What am I failing to see that this brilliant team sees in this player, but it might just be a case of the absolute best freely available option right now in our estimation for this specific role, mostly playing first base and starting against left-handed pitching, happens to be this guy who used to be awesome, and we're going to cast him aside as soon as our next best option is healthy again. Maybe mm -hmm. that's how it goes down. If he sticks for more than a few weeks, I will be questioning my process every day right. <laughs> that he remains on the roster. Uh, I think with Yoshi Satsugo, the other player they recently picked up, I can rationalize that a little more, right? He's still 29. You know, Last season being his first season in the big leagues, it, 2020, if you're going to debut in a season, it's the weirdest yeah, possible right. year to debut. <laughs> Add the difficulty of coming from a different country, and I, I get that. And I think with Satsugo, you could look at some of the underlying numbers. He barreled the ball when he did make contact last year at a decent clip. You know, walks a little bit. Like I can rationalize the flyer in that case, but what did you see from Satsugo last year, and how far away from your expectations did he actually fall? I don't remember how I. I must have rated him at some point as a free agent, and I honestly, I would tell you, trust me, if I thought he was going to be a better player, I'd admit it. I remember Fukudome for the Cubs. I thought he'd be a way better player than he was when he came here and his swing just really didn't translate. He ended up not driving the ball anywhere near as consistently. Um, Sutsugo, when he was in Japan, was a, a, pulled it up again. He's an incredibly patient hitter. And we saw that and basically nothing else. Like There's some little bit of the power, but nowhere near enough. And you have to, this year, he still hasn't homered. You have to hit to hit for power. And in his case, 
He's not even hitting right-handed pitching. That was the one thing you thought, well, at worst, a guy like this, a left-handed hitter with some patience and power, he'd be a useful platoon outfielder. He hasn't even been close to that. He really hasn't hit right-handers. I think his OBP since he came over against right-handed pitchers is shade under 300. That's just not playable. At that point, again, sort of the same thing. I don't know what you do with this player. Now, unlike Pools, Tsutsuga is not a born DH. And because he's left-handed, you could maybe. They think they can tweak a little something and find a, a little bit more so he can help against right-handed pitchers. You'd, you'd always have a little more interest in a left-handed hitter because at least if he's got some platoon, you know, he's uh, strong enough on, uh, good enough on the strong side of the platoon, maybe you've got a role for him. But he hasn't done that since he got here. Um, so I don't, again, kind of the same thing. I don't know. The Dodgers, the Dodgers have a really good farm system. I think they kind of have some guys that they could probably have called up, maybe who'd be who could give them more than Sutsugo and Pujols. They lost Edwin Rios for the year, and I was kind of, kind of liked Edwin Rios. I think I don't think he's ever going to play regularly for the Dodgers, but he could play regularly for a bad team, and he could have a bench role for basically any team. Because uh, if nothing else, he hits the ball pretty hard, pretty consistently, and there's a there is a space for a guy like that. If Rios were healthy, I think he had season-ending sur- surgery. So if he were healthy, one of these guys just never even sees the Dodgers. The only other thing that has me pretty shook when you see Pujols and Satsugo getting starts for the Dodgers is seeing them mm-hmm. hitting cleanup. Yeah. How do you internally look at those guys who weren't on your roster and say, these guys are better options than Matt Beatty and, and Gavin Lux and some of the guys you've had all season hitting in the bottom half of your lineup? Like That that doesn't quite line up for me either. Yeah, I, I mean, lineup construction is, I feel like it's a hotly debated thing for as long as I've been covering or even freelancing in baseball. And, you know, there are, uh, analysts will tell you it doesn't really matter at the end of the day it's only a couple of runs here and there over the course of the season to me it's sort of the principle of the thing if you can get three extra runs over the course of the season why not just go get them yeah yeah exactly so in this case and i feel like they're probably leaving some out there they're probably leaving some offense on the table and no team should do that no matter how good the offense is right. there's no reason to leave runs on the table so that's the other frustrating part of it for me just trying to figure out how teams think and why they do things the way they do where we're seeing Satsuko and Pujols hitting that lineup is absolutely mind-blowing I want to check in on a few rookies we spoke last week about the arrival of Logan Gilbert and Jared Kelnick we've seen two starts now from Gilbert Keith and his command has been inconsistent but I also wonder if expectations might be unfairly harsh like if he gets graded on a steeper curve as a highly coveted prospect coming up and making those first couple of starts we just expect him to be a finished product out of the box somewhat unfairly Uh, what have you noticed in these first two starts from Gilbert yeah I I I think he's been fine I think he's been close enough to expectations seems like the stuff has been good Um, it's just such a huge jump for guys that at this point I feel like major league hitters especially are and we talk so much now about major league pitchers being so good. Major league hitters are also so good that, you know, I think it is more of a surprise to me when some pitcher rolls out of the minors and pulls like what Trevor Rogers is doing this year, although even he had to change his slider to turn into this guy that he is right now. It is such a big adjustment, I think, for pitchers who even pitchers who have really good command and control all the way up through AAA, and then they get to the majors. Hey, these hitters are the most patient I've ever seen. These hitters can hit off-speed stuff better than anybody I've ever seen. I I, I don't know if this is true. But there's, I'm, I'm making a bit of an assertion light on evidence here. But 
is the gap between the minors and the majors any bigger than it has been historically in terms of guys coming to the majors for the first time and seeing that caliber of competition. Major League players are so good and so fine-tuned at this point to hit the best pitching or to pitch to, to pitch the most effectively they've ever pitched. You know, Maybe for most guys, we're going to see rougher starts. Jared Kalanick has not been off to a great start. He is one of the best prospects in baseball. I think he will eventually get there. I don't know, and I, I don't actually know if this is true. I have We have seen enough very talented players come up to the majors and have uneven starts. I wouldn't even necessarily say bad starts, but maybe just be less effective, less productive right out of the box than we expect. Maybe that jump, especially jumping from, say, double A to the majors, maybe that's just bigger than ever, and we should expect a little bit of a longer adjustment period or for more guys to require an adjustment period than we might have three, five, ten years ago. I, I don't know. It is a thought that has crossed my mind a few times this season as we've seen guys, especially guys who didn't play last year, come up and just be get off to a little bit of a rougher start than we might have forecasted based on everything they'd done previously. And I wonder if the quality of the information that teams have on prospects arriving in the big leagues now is also greater than it's ever been because of TrackMan and some of the stuff that we don't get on the public side, but that teams have access to, if that's helping them build more effective scouting reports and making that learning curve even more steep for a lot of players. I think if you're looking at Kelnick's first week and you're underwhelmed, I mean, consider Dylan Carlson came up last year for the Cardinals, played quite a bit and did get sent down for a little while. He struggled. He was posting a 65 WRC plus at the end of the season. I mean, that's a brutal start for 35 games, but it was only 35 games. And as we've seen in a similar sample in 2021, he's already looking more and more like the player many people thought he would be. He's walking a lot more. He's striking out less. Uh, he's getting to the power a little bit. He's got a 126 WRC plus in 43 games here in 2021. So you know, it can take a partial season or even a full season before guys start to get everything they need in place to start producing at the above average and well above average levels that we eventually project them to reach. And I really like the, what the Cardinals did because so last year in spring training, there was talk, oh, Carlson might be ready for the big leagues. He was out of high A. I was thrilled to see him doing so well, but I said, this, this seems exceptionally aggressive. And they didn't, I think, did he make their opening day roster? He was up a few days afterwards when the season finally did open. And so he was he was playing pretty regularly for them in August of last year, but not well. And so they sent him down and sent him to the alternate site, really. Sent him whatever that is across the street or around the corner or something. <laughs> uh, they brought him back and they clearly worked on things. His approach was better. Now, it was September and you always have to be suspicious of players who just improve when it gets to September because obviously with expanded rosters slash maybe some players, especially pitchers, getting fatigued, maybe that skews performance a little bit. But I said, you know what? This... The September Dylan Carlson looked more like the Dylan Carlson we saw in the minors than we expected to see. So there's a little reason to add that, uh, that increase your hope a little bit for him based on that. And I think that's kind of what we've seen from him this year. He has been good. He hasn't been a star immediately. I still think he's going to be a star at some point. He's still very young. He still hasn't played all that much. He just hasn't done, I don't even think he has a full major league season's worth of playing time, but he's getting there. He's move. Everything is moving in the right direction. I give the Cardinals credit too. They saw something. They sent him out to the alt site. They worked with him. They brought him back. We saw tangible progress. And they said, nope, he's going to make the major league roster for us this year. And he has been playing very regularly. He's often hitting second in the lineup. And they're getting some production out of him, particularly they're getting on base skills, which was one of the big markers for him that I thought made him such a valuable prospect. And I think more is 
more is coming. I do think there'll be higher average, more power to come as he plays more, as he continues to get comfortable. But just, I get, like I said, give them, and I should give the kid a lot of credit too for making those adjustments for a development plan that I think makes sense and reflects the reality now where few young players, few rookies are coming up and are just catch fire right out of the gate and hold it. A lot of guys are going to come up and struggle with the transition, struggle to make adjustments to the high, high caliber of play in the majors right now. And then maybe have to, maybe a lot of guys come up, go down, come back up again. And that's fine. We should sort of normalize players doing that, understanding, hey, even Mike Trout went back to the minors once after his first call up. That's fine. It is not so much about how you get there, but it's where you get when you finish. Yeah, I think adjusting those expectations, especially for the very young top prospects who come up, is something I definitely need to do. The other thing I, I think I've become more open-minded to is that the older prospects who come in, Adelis Garcia kind of fits this type. The, the late 20s guy getting the opportunity for the first time, I, I used to look at those players and say, this can't possibly last. Now I look yeah. at it and say, this actually could last. There are a number of reasons why a player might not be getting that first opportunity until age 26, 27, or 28. And I think with a guy like Garcia, you look at some of the underlying numbers, he's barreling up the ball a lot. There's definitely a swing and miss problem that's in his profile. We've seen that in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I'm not sure that's ever going to go completely away. But I think the thing that makes Garcia really interesting is the Rangers are giving him every day playing time. Leody Tavares was overmatched in the big leagues. He's struggling right now in AAA. He's probably not coming back for months. I'd be fine with that. I love Leody Tavares. I think he's going to be a really good player. But he belonged in the big leagues last year. And so... It's it's out of order, right? Mm-hmm. You come to you know jump from I think he finished in Double A, jump to the majors, then go back to Triple A. You know what? Give him the rest of the year in Triple A. Let him get stronger. In his case, that's that's really the case. So anyway, continue. But yeah. That's my Leody Tavares thought. No, like worst case, he's a, a bottom third of the order every day center fielder because of his defense. Like, and yep. there's a chance if you develop him right, you get something more with the bat. Garcia, I, I think. Because the Rangers were comfortable giving Danny Santana pretty much everyday playing time in 2019, I think they're the type of organization, they don't have anyone pushing Garcia right now. They just let him play. And if you let a guy like this yeah. play, you might get 25 homers and 10 steals by season's end. You might have a, a surprising, useful piece on your next good team. More likely than not because of his age, that's not how it plays out. But I'm at least open-minded to the possibility of a late bloomer like this sticking around and being good for a while. Yeah, he's interesting because when he, I remember when he first defected from Cuba and then he played a little bit. He actually played a little bit in Japan before. Is it just one year? It looks like it's one year before coming over. And there was quite a bit of hype, but he was more supposed to be a guy who'd hit for average and run. And then he came here and he didn't really look like that player exactly. And then over the next couple of years, St. Louis gave him what one brief call up, um, which, you know, barely anything. He mostly played some defense. Then he goes and spends most of 2018, no, all of 2019 in AAA. And his line in AAA in 2019 is kind of fascinating. Um, he hit 32 bombs. It, he had a 253 average, 517 slug, only a 301 on base percentage. And that was, even that was kind of boosted by the fact that he was hit by 13 pitches. This guy doesn't walk, <laughs> right? And that's kind of what we've seen from him this year. He has 40 punch outs. 142 plate appearances, so it's at about 29%, 28-29% strikeout rate. Uh, on the higher end, but frankly, just not, you don't even, like anything under 30 barely elicits comment at this point. Uh, 
11 homers and just three other extra base hits. Like, that's weird, right? You don't see that. That is, that is the profile of the classic mistake hitter. And I wonder if he can continue to hit for average post and even adequate on base percentage as that kind of hitter. So the power is pretty clear. I think there's no question that this power is here um, and that he's demonstrated enough power. It was 22 homers in 2018 in AAA, 32 in 2019. Obviously, last year he only had seven plate appearances. He's already got 11 this year. Maybe he ends up a 25 homer guy with a 300 on base or less on base percentage. If I'm Texas, that's fine until somebody else needs to play, right? He's This guy's 28. He costs nothing. You might as well play guys like that and see what happens. Maybe he turns into somebody someone else is coveting in trade, even if it's just as a part-time player. You try to, when you're a bad team like the Rangers are, you should be trying to create value in players who just didn't get opportunities elsewhere. Um, until you have, the, until either you get a good trade offer or, let's say, Leody Tavares makes it clear that he is ready. He adds the strength and he's able to impact major league pitching. And then he comes back and says, okay, well now this guy needs playing time. We can do something. I don't know why I'm stuck in the AL West, but I want to talk about Dane Dunning for a moment too. I mean, he pitched in the big leagues last year, still had his rookie eligibility coming into the season. And I don't know how he exactly does it with his stuff. <laughs> the numbers are starting to fall apart a little bit more recently, but he's missing a lot of bats for a guy that doesn't throw particularly hard. Do you just see a long-term back-end guy here, or do you see one more level that Dunning could unlock? I had a, My big concern at the time that they traded for him was that Dunning wasn't really showing a pitch that he could use to get left-handed batters out. Now, so far this year, he has actually been slightly better against left-handed batters than he has against right-handed batters. That's a really small sample tune size, as you know this well. I'm just more saying this just to sort of as prefacing my eventual argument. We do need to see him doing that over a longer period of time to buy into it, but it is at least a positive for me. I don't think he has a plus pitch. I don't think he has like absolutely has a real swing and miss weapon in his arsenal, but he could always really pitch and seem like he could really locate. And I think that's going to carry him above his stuff. I thought, even when I saw him in college as a reliever, I thought he might be more of a third starter once he was kind of unleashed, put him in a real rotation and just kind of let him go. That's probably a little bit too optimistic, but I think he could be maybe a fourth starter, maybe touch league average. Um, I mean, the fact that he does have pretty good movement on his uh, breaking stuff, particularly on a slider, he throws both the uh, stack has him throwing both a slider and a cutter and actually throws a curveball too. And he really can, uh, even though it's not high spin rates, but he gets a lot of movement on those pitches that at least same side right on right should make him pretty effective. Um, what I am curious, I'm just curious to see how it goes, where his changeup's been a little bit more effective this year. He does look like he's throwing it a little bit more often, and the movement on the pitch is a little bit different than it was last year. Nothing is substantial. I'm saying a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but maybe that's all it took when he's got multiple other weapons and he can throw everything for strikes and for some quality strikes. If the changeup just went from, say, it was a 45 grade to a soft 50, that probably changes his outlook quite a bit. And then he really is a he is a starter. And maybe he's just one of those innings guys who's never much more than league average. But if they get that and they get five years out of him as a league average-ish starter who can handle a full workload, that's great. That is exactly what they need because they don't they've had so many injuries to their pitching prospects, especially so many Tommy John surgeries. 
getting one like Dunning, who's already had Tommy John surgery, but looks healthy and durable now, that would be fantastic for them. It's exactly what they need. Yeah, perennial 160, 170 inning guy. Yes, take it. It holds a lot of value, I think, long term, if that's exactly what he becomes. But uh, it exceeds my expectations sometimes. And I think, again, it's because it doesn't light up the radar gun with the fastball. Secondaries do look pretty good to this point. Uh, Keith, I mentioned this up top. Who's having the better year? Unwritten rules or umpires? <laughs> Unwritten rules are having a hell of a year, aren't they? They really uh, are. Yes. Although somebody pointed out, I wish I could credit them. I feel like it was a player who said this, but that Tony La Russa um, you know, was ranting about the unwritten rules when he couldn't even remember the written rules for dealing with an extra inning situation. I mean, really, the unwritten rules thing is much more about um, I mean, it, I feel like sixty percent of the unwritten rules stuff this year is Tony Larusa, isn't it? I mean, he is—he's been everything those of us in the media could have hoped for. He is the like Guy Montag of firefighters. You know, if Guy, Guy Montag is a firefighter, that's Tony Larusa as a manager. Everywhere he goes, he seems to be setting things ablaze. I, it, it must be terrible to be a White Sox fan right now because you've got to look at this and say, how are we not? Eight games ahead, right? How are we not the best team in baseball? One of the most successful teams in baseball. And yet, uh, you have Tony Larissa, who I think has not done a very good job managing the clubhouse, is ranting about all of the wrong things, and his in-game management is particularly atrocious. But the unwritten rules seem to be um, kind of a big part of his MO, which is great if he were still managing in 1993. Yeah, it seems like he's pretty clearly losing the clubhouse. If you look at some of the tweets from White Sox players on Twitter, they pretty uh, consistently Tim, support Jeremy Mercedes. Yeah, clearly. As they should. I don't think he did anything wrong. No, because I, I tweeted this at the time it happened. What What is the sportsmanship move in that situation? Mercedes is batting against Williams Estadio, the third string catcher utility guy for the Twins. Estadio's throwing the ball 45 to 47 miles per hour. He can either walk on four straight pitches up 11 runs, or he can just swing. Mm-hmm. If you swing, you might make an out. Yeah, I actually think swinging is a better sign of sportsmanship than walking in that situation if we're trying to measure that. I always thought, now I didn't grow up playing or in a clubhouse, right? So take this for what it's worth. But my sense from sitting in the stands with scouts and executives is... And I spent a couple of years in a front office where I would just listen to guys who would talk about stuff like this. And when you had a position player pitching, you're up by like 12 runs. The, don't go up there and take pitches. Just go up there and swing, right? Just get it all. Everyone wants to be done at that point. Once the outcome of the game is really determined, and once Williams Astadio is pitching, the outcome of the game has been determined. So just go up there and swing. Swing at the first thing that's close. And so I don't think Mercedes did anything wrong at all in that situation. If anything, I, and I'm agreeing with you, he did the right thing. Just go up and hack, right? If you, you know what? If you strike out, so what? If you pop up or ground out weakly, so what? Yeah. You're moving the game a lot. You're doing the right thing. You certainly don't want a position player out there throwing 40 pitches to try to get three more outs and finish the game. In a normal world, a person like Tony La Russa might apologize to his player publicly for being wrong. Uh, we, Did that happen? That won't happen. We, we just oh, know that will not happen. I had such hopes. Is Tony La Russa going to make it through the season, though? Because, and I realize players didn't always have a platform like Twitter to publicly show us how they really feel about their manager. This is a good team. This is a great team that is overcoming some adversity with some pretty big injuries so far, too. Do you think Tony La Russa actually makes it through the entire season managing the White Sox? 
yes, because of the owner. Hmm. If this this isn't the this isn't the GM's decision. Uh, if Rick Hahn were making the decision, he wouldn't have been hired in the first place. LaRusso was hired, as far as I can tell, people I've talked to, other media seem to say the same thing. This was the owner's choice. And until the owner says, okay, we can replace him, they're stuck. I think they're stuck. That's lousy. It's terrible to be a White Sox fan in that situation. They could miss the playoffs because of this guy. And that would be really lousy given the field, the team that they've put on the field. They've assembled a playoff caliber roster. LaRusso could cost them that. The only thing I could think of that might change this is something, some sort of, I use the term a, a bit reluctantly, but a player revolt. That if enough players came out either publicly or I don't know to what extent the players have some access to the owner and said, we're not playing for this guy anymore, maybe that would do it. But I do, I do not foresee Jerry Reinsdorf himself making the unilaterally making the decision to move on from his buddy LaRusa because he just hired him in the first place. He hired him because that was his buddy. He certainly didn't hire him because he was the best candidate. We all know he wasn't the best candidate. There was no question he wasn't the best candidate. And yet he hired him anyway because that's his buddy. And I don't think he's going to go back on his buddy firing his, his buddy there unless circumstances absolutely demanded it. And he could, And then he could argue... Tony, I'm sorry. My, my hand was forced here, but the players, they say you suck. <laughs> it would just be uh, unprecedented, really. I can't think of any time where we've had players really push a manager out like that in year one, especially a manager right. with LaRusse's track record in the game. I mean, can, can we just be done with hiring these retreads too? I know LaRusse has a Hall of Fame. He is a literal Hall of Famer. He has a Hall of Fame resume. What is he, 75? He hadn't managed in 10 years. You think of all of the, uh, not necessarily more qualified in terms of total resume, but more qualified to manage in today's game, all of the candidates, uh, many of whom are going to be candidates of color too, who baseball is trying to get more people of color into management, into managing jobs or into front offices. And then you just hire a 75-year-old white retread like LaRusso, who hasn't been a manager in 10 years and has just shown exact, he's everything we thought he'd be. He's completely out of date. CeCe Sabathia had a brilliant, if unquotable, rant, but he said he's out of date and he's right. LaRusso is completely out of date. He's shown himself to be absolutely unequal to the task of managing a team in 2021. And it is, it's just straight up bad for baseball as well as being bad for the White Sox when guys like him keep getting jobs over and over. Yeah, and he's become the story. I mean, you see plenty of yeah. national writers writing about this situation and... Oh, the writers love it. We're talking about it instead of talking about more interesting things that are happening yeah. on the field. So it is bad for the game aside from being bad for the White Sox. And I'll, I'll even say, as someone who... I'm in the media. I'm not afraid to criticize the media. I don't think I am. But in this case, I'm going to defend the media. You don't want Tony LaRusso to be the story. Don't hire him. Yeah. Do you, you pick... you. You knew. We all knew. And there's no way that people around Reinsdorf didn't say, this is a bad idea, and here's why. If I saw that, and you saw that, lots of other people outside the organization saw that, then people inside the organization saw that. Do not assume that the White Sox people are all idiots and didn't see this coming. The owner made this choice. I will bet you, without ever actually asking anyone, the I would never ask someone in the White Sox front office to like... <laughs> you know, even completely on background to betray the owner like that. But I would bet you if you knew, if you were a fly on those walls, you would know 
people told him what was going to happen and he just didn't listen. Almost certainly. Yes, I would agree with you on that one for sure. Let's get to a couple minor league standouts before we go. Alec Manoa just continues to dominate at AAA. He's up to a 27 to 3 strikeout to walk in 18 innings and I'm wondering, is he just going to leapfrog Nate Pearson for the next opportunity in that Jays rotation? Well, he's healthy, right? And Pearson cannot seem to stay healthy right now. And I have, I absolutely have concerns about his Pearson's long-term durability. Now he's been hurt so much. And it used to be, well, it was a freak thing, right? He got a comebacker off his elbow and broke a bone and Maybe Pier- maybe Pearson can't ever stay healthy. I really don't want to jump to that right now, but maybe in the short term, it's better for him to be on some kind of really restricted or managed workload to try to build up some strength. And Manoa is Manoa, if nothing else. I've always been a Manoa guy. And I thought at worst, you've got a really durable back end guy because he's a ho- he is huge by baseball standards. He's almost football big and has a great, has, as far as I know, no real track record of. No, I don't think he's ever had a significant arm problem. And he seems to be throwing as hard as ever. He's throwing as effectively as ever. You want to bring him up and give him rotation turns? I'm sure at some point later in the year, they would try to pull back the throttle just because he didn't pitch last year. But all indicators are he's your better bet for quality innings in the short term than Nate Pearson is. Yeah, and they need those innings badly. I mean, the AL East, pretty close right now. You got four teams all within a game and a half of first place. Really, the Orioles are the only non-contender of that group as to be expected. Um, the other guy that really kind of caught my eye just doing some number scouting, Hunter Green is thriving right now. The electric velocity is still there post-injury, of course. He had a two-year layoff because of Tommy John surgery and the canceled minor league season. But he's at double A right now, and it looks really good on paper, Keith. I think my question for you is, is it more than an electric fastball with Hunter Green? Are those secondary pitches good enough for him to use them consistently as he continues to advance. So I think so. Um, I would love to see him at some point this year. We'll see how the schedule shakes out. Uh, you know, one of the knocks on green was that people, people said even in high school when he was hitting a hundred, Oh, well guys hit his fastball though. It's not a really high quality fastball. And that's, that can be a thing at a hundred. And you know, this, we saw him in the futures game where he was just in the an inning and he was, I'm going to throw as hard as I possibly can. It was almost like, I'm going to do this for the crowd. Let's light up the radar gun. And the good Luis Basabe took him deep on, I think 102. So good hitters can get on a high velocity fastball, particularly if it's kind of straight. So I also, infer, I've seen Hunter Green, remember spring training a couple of years ago before he got hurt, where he showed what I thought was the best slider I'd ever seen from him. He's got the arm speed for it. He doesn't have to get huge spin for that pitch to be effective because it's just going to come in so hard. It should be 90, 91, 92. And he had feel for a change. He had the makings of the other weapons, but he had to do two things. One was he had to throw better strikes with the fastball, first of all. And it does very much seem like he's doing that. It seemed like he was doing that in reports I got from him from the fall and even from last summer. In addition to the fact that he just was bigger and stronger now that he'd gotten a little bit old, he's 21 now and he'd had time off after Tommy John to work on other things. But also I infer a little bit from this, he wouldn't be dominating like this if he didn't have other pitches working for him. What I can't tell you yet is what exact which of those pitches? I haven't talked to anybody who's seen him in the three starts so far this year. Which of those pitches maybe is most effective for him? But I don't think he'd be dominating like this with just the fastball. Even if he's sitting 100, 101, as I said just a moment ago, the 
hitters can get on that stuff. It's shocking how much how many hitters can get on a fastball of that velocity. I saw Riley Pint throw a 98 mile an hour fastball in a Kansas high school game, and an opposing hitter hit a line drive single to him. I thought that 16 year old just hit the hardest pitch he'll probably ever see in his life. Someone give him a scholarship. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if it's a flat fastball. It- Velo in just becomes a velo out pretty quickly. Hitters figure out a way to time it. Right. You can cheat a little bit if you're thinking, well, he's going to throw me a fastball beyond it. And if he throws me something else, then I'll tip my hat to him. But it's not the worst approach when you got a guy coming in throwing 100, especially if it's 100 and fairly straight. And Greens, I think, was it's not the straightest. It didn't have a ton of life. I, I've seen straighter fastballs. It's been, Billy Koch comes to mind. He's a guy who threw 100, but you, you could hang clothes on it. It was such a, it was so straight. So to, you know, Greens was, on the on the true side of things, he needed to have other pitches. And in college, he, in, sorry, in high school, he was trying to throw this slurvy, more curveball type breaking ball that I think he really liked. It was just not that good of a pitch. And the Reds, for a while, were trying to tell him, "No, no, no, go with the slider. Slide. You, you throw. You don't have a naturally plus curveball, but you have a super fast arm. Throw a slider." To me, that's the most obvious choice. I know they've been working on him on that with him. We'll see. Hopefully, I'll get to see him. I'll talk as season goes on. I'll talk to more people. I'll find someone who saw him, and we'll see if that's actually the case. Because to me, that was the thing that could make him be an ace. He wasn't going to be an ace without a real plus or better secondary pitch, and the slider had the best chance to get to that. Yeah, Chattanooga right now with Hunter Green and Nick Lodolo, one of the best one-two combos in the minors. That's okay. I've never really thought about a road trip to Chattanooga, but I'm kind of thinking about it. And. Tying to something we talked about earlier, Jose Israel Garcia, who came up last year, didn't belong up and was awful for them. Really aw- so bad, I was worried. Like, God, I hope this doesn't affect him going forward because it was just such an atrocious Major League debut. To their credit, they sent him down to A. So from the majors back down to A, which is where he should have been last year if there had been a minor league season. And he's off to a nice start. It's only a handful of games. I want to overread into it, but he's doing everything he should be doing, and he's not striking out any. He's actually striking out relatively low rate so far, and it I, it restores my hope. I liked Garcia as a prospect for a while. Um, I'll give credit to Eric Longenhagen, who I think saw him even before anybody else did, and he was the first person who ever. He actually said to me, "Hey, this Cuban guy, he might be pretty interesting." And as I dug to get more information on him, sure enough, he absolutely was. He's been pretty much the prospect that uh, he was supposed to be from when he signed. He just didn't belong in the majors last year. And I think the Reds, are that's, they've done a nice job. That's That was the smart move. Even I don't even know. The player might have hated it going all the way back down to double A. But now he's back on track. And I feel much better about his outlook as a prospect. So go to Chattanooga. Go to Chattanooga. Go check out the Deep South if they're on the road. See uh, Montgomery maybe would be a good spot to go. I, I yeah. don't know. Do you have a favorite deep southern city in the minors? Oh, God. Well, Charleston is the almost too obvious call, right? Because it's great food town. Um and I like that little ballpark. Greenville, South Carolina has a fantastic ballpark. I only went through there once, but I loved they had a little downtown that was pretty nearby with like really cute with like lots of bars and stuff. And the ballpark has like a mini Fenway replica vibe there, which I think is great. Um, where else have I been to in the day? I've never been to a minor league game in never in Alabama, right? I've only been to the SEC tournament there in Hoover, which I do not recommend. It's really hot. It's- <laughs> Hoover is Birmingham's kind of cool. I actually like Birmingham. Hoover, not so much. 
in Mississippi, I've actually never seen a game in Mississippi. I've been to Mississippi in my life, but I have never been to a game in Mississippi. Anytime I've had to see one of those players, I have seen them somewhere else. So yeah, that's probably, those are probably those two in South Carolina would be my my two choices. There's also some new, Pensacola's got a new ballpark. Biloxi's got a new ballpark. I just haven't been to these because um, from where I live, it's not super easy to get to. If you live in, if you live down there, it's easy to drive to a bunch of these. I instead am driving to, I might be driving to Reading next week, for example. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah, new park in uh, Rocket City, Madison, Alabama for the Trash Pandas right, too. The Trash Pandas, yes. Great name. Yeah. Great name. They're out there with the names, aren't they? They really are. But I love, I love my. I do. I have a soft spot for the Fisher Cats in New Hampshire because I worked for the Blue Jays when they came into existence. Also, that's a weasel. <laughs> I actually didn't know that. It's a weasel. It is a type of weasel. Yeah. Learn something every day. That's why I'm here. Before we go, I should let everyone know we got a new deal up for new subscribers. $1 a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. It gets you all of Keith's writing, rankings, everything we do as a company. $1 a month to start. It's the best deal that we ever do. So be sure to sign up for that. Again, theathletic.com slash baseball show. If you're enjoying this podcast, take a moment to leave us a rating and review and tell a friend if you have a friend that would enjoy the show as well. We'd really appreciate that. Be sure to check out the latest episode of Keith's podcast, The Keith Law Show. John Tomasi from NBC Sports Boston was the guest this week. A lot of great Red Sox talk and some board game recommendations in that episode as well. You can hear me on Rates and Barrels and our full suite of fantasy baseball shows on Twitter. He's at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend.